I don't know uh, how I got selected for this one, but this uh, topic this morning of Jesus bringing us in humility, joy, laughter, and singing uh, is the theme of my whole life. This is how I have come to appreciate, enjoy, understand, and live out the reality of Jesus' grace in my life. The joy of the Lord is my strength. That when I feel crushed and, and burdened down, when everything seems to dissipate in my life and doesn't go well, to struggle back to that point where I enjoy God. The very first creed of the Christian church was, the whole duty of man is to enjoy God. So when Marie turned the gun on me and forced me to preach this morning, I said, okay, if I have to, I will. So enough preamble stuff. Few of us have grown up, unfortunately, with a picture of God laughing. All of the pictures that hang on walls is this somber, it's an amazing picture of Jesus. You know what's in your head, don't you? But it's never smiling. Kind eyes. But where is the laughter? Where is this belly laugh of, of intense freedom and joy that comes when you are surprised by the joy around you, by the world and the life around you. Uh, most of us, unfortunately, have to deprogram ourselves. And the God that we grew up with was sort of a snarky little dude. Sort of uptight and intense. And the worst part about him was that he was a perfectionist. And he was ready to let you have it the minute you didn't do it quite right. You remember that kind of God where you, I hope you were never have to, I hope everything I've just said means nothing to you. Say, what? But most of us probably had to deprogram from a God like that that was out to get you. And you make a bad mistake and you are zapped. But luckily for you, you have this person called Jesus who steps in and you know he cares a little bit more for you than the father does and he says oh hold back your wrath God I'm going to cover for all of this and I'm going to stand in the way and I'm going to give grace and mercy and peace to this imperfect human being that you're about to zap and I'm exaggerating of course but you know what I'm saying right and even that story is couched with blood and torture and, and an awful death. And far too little time is spent with this God who knows how to laugh and actually experiences belly laughs and tears roll down his face and a God who is much more into parties and, and fast, uh, uh, fatted calves and oil in the beards than he is in telling you every move to make in your life. You get the picture? So I just want us to find this morning and invite you into a deeper, more personal, intense journey for yourself into this, this laughing God who actually likes life and he likes your life. And the things that drives your spouse crazy about you, that wall that you keep hitting every time in your relationship, God sort of chuckles at it. Oh, there goes Bob again. Oh, there. Come on, Bev, give him a break. <laughs> of course, he never says that about her. You know. So let's pray together as we get started in talking about joy and laughter and singing together this morning. Father, just pour into us the reality, the other side 
Yes, you did die. That's, that's central. That's important. You gave yourself. You showed us what love looks like on the cross. But your fundamental spirit is to, to create joy and laughter and singing so that it's worth somewhere living this life, that there's hope for us, that in the midst of the darkest moment in our life, there is still a time and a place for joy and laughter and singing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I just want us to use our imagination this morning, okay? None of this is, you're not going to find this in Scripture, but this is Bob's weird mind coming into an imagination here. And uh, just imagine for a minute, based upon this verse in Ephesians 1, verse 4, God chose us before the creation of the world, okay? So let's just imagine the three of them are sitting around the divine office somewhere in heaven, this mahogany table inlaid with gold nuggets and silver nuggets and jasper and, I mean, every kind of stone you can ever imagine on this table. And they're, they're sitting around one day and they're drinking their heavenly iced tea, whatever that was, and they're starting to say, okay, what do we do next? I don't know what they had just finished. I don't know what project they'd done, maybe Red Men, Red Men on Mars or whatever. But, but now they're saying, what shall we do next? And they started imagining you and me, way back when, before time ever, you know, we don't even know what time is back in those days. And so they start talking, and, and creativity always takes root first, doesn't it? And you start getting excited about what you're imagining, and they start talking about, hey, well, let's, why don't we make somebody in our image? Let's make somebody like us. Well, how far along the way are we going to do that? I mean, we, we gave the giraffes instinct and we gave, you know, all these other people living off of their instincts. What does it mean to make them in our image? You mean we're going to give them the freedom of choice? Oh, yes. How are they going to be creative? How are they going to develop? How are they going to build the things that they can build if, if they don't have the, the, the processes to be able to choose not this and this and maybe another time this and not this? And just think of what that choice could mean in, in bringing out life within them. And they start looking at you and me and, and the wonder in our eyes when we're surprised by our joy and, 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 and the things that we make we like, even if they're ugly. And the expansiveness of our brain that we can, you know, in, even in that that story there in Genesis in the Tower of Babel when God speaks to himself, and I don't know if he really said this, but it's recorded there, that they talked to each other. They said, this, this creation that we've made can do anything they set their mind to. And here are the three of them sitting around this table up in heaven somewhere, imagining what it would be like to create somebody in their image with the ability to choose and process and grow and expand and make and remake the world and shape and reshape shape the world and all the possibilities and they're just I don't know they how many how many hours they spent just being excited about the thought because that's what creative people do and then somewhere in the in the process of all of that one of the three of them said but what happens if they choose another way a dark side something that is not building up, but maybe something that is destructive. What if they use those powers in a wrong way? What are we going to do then? And so 
creative people don't like to get bogged down in that negativity, but they did. They took another sip of iced tea and they started talking, well, what are we going to do? If, if we think this is worth it, what happens if they choose incorrectly? And so way back when, God, sitting around that divine table, came up with a plan that one of the three of them would come down and show us what it was like to live, to show us what it was like to be something more than stuck in our darkness and in our depravity and in our hurting and in our shame and our guilt and in all the things that, that we take for granted as being just normal life. And so a plan of redemption, the Bible calls it, a plan of hope, a plan of future restoration was formulated there. One of them was going to come down here. I don't think it was selected at that moment in time which one of the three was going to come down. Maybe they did the old you know, rock, paper, scissor thing. I don't know. Yeah, I, I could imagine God doing that. Let's do rock, paper, scissors here and figure out which one of us is going to go down there. Guys, you... Go to sleep now if, you, if I'm, I'm way off the chart rails here, okay? And so one of them chose to come. Maybe they all three spoke at the same time. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. Who knows? I'd like to know. I, I think someday we'll, we'll know. But one of them chose to come. Then they came to the one who was going to come to earth. Notice this. And this is the important part of, of the, the setting up the scenario here of the rest of the, of the talk this morning. With the confidence of the Godhead, okay? You've got to understand that when God does things, God knows he's going to do it. That he's not going to fail. He's not going to falter. He's not going to wonder. He's not going to... God didn't sit up in heaven for 33 years biting his fingernails wondering if Jesus was going to make it. He knew he was going to make it. That doesn't mean that the, that the torment and the torture and the, and the difficulty of Jesus wasn't, wasn't heart-rending and horrifying. But God does what he's going to do. And there's a certain level of confidence that comes with it. They knew the assumption of success was there. They knew it was going to be worth it. The swagger of the omnipotence. I like that. I always like godly swagger. I got you. I got your back. I got you covered. The joy of victory was already, I mean, they were, you know, creative people always look at the end. They don't even look so much at the process going through. They just know what it's going to look like at the end of, of, of everything. The skyscraper is going to look this way. The, the artwork's going to look this way. The, the song is going to sound something like this, and then they go about creating it. And they're looking at the end and not so much the process, so they get a lot of fun out of the process. And then they said this, let's call his name Jesus. Matthew 1, 21. In my mind, when they said that, they all keeled over laughing their heads off. Of all of the names that you could come up with, I mean, here he is, the God of the universe, for pity's sakes. How about some impressive names like Octavian Victorinus? 
Now, now that's, a, that's an appropriate name for God coming down to this earth, right? Or Universal Magnifico. Or Maximilian Omnipotus. I like that one too. They said to each other, no, let's just call him Fred. Or Sam. Or even worse, Bob. Three nondescript names if I ever saw them. Me, it would be just run-of-the-mill, blah names. Yeah, instead of the big stuff, let's just call him a common, normal name. And that had to have brought out a laugh. You know, looking at all the, the aura of the universe and the omnipotence of God himself, okay, you're going to go down there and we're just going to call you Jesus. It's the name that every kid in the world had in those days. It was not, he was not the only Jesus. It was the most common name in Israel. You don't think that God laughs? You don't think that he thinks things are funny? You don't think that he would have enjoyed that? Not only did this name show the humility of this God who was coming to this earth, that he would pick a name like that, but it shows that God just had a twinkle in his eye and thought this was sort of cute. Psalm 2, 1 through 4. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against God and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Or how about this one in Psalm 37? The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for God knows that their day is coming. What comes to my mind is, is when your four-year-old, you've just taken his toys away and say, it's time to go to bed, Johnny. And Johnny doesn't want to go to bed, and he's a little upset. And he gets mad. And he starts kicking and screaming and looking for anything he can do to hit, Right? So you as a parent just sort of put your hand on his head and step back just slightly, and he's flailing away, kicking away, screaming away, angrier, and the more you laugh, the more he gets angry, right? That's what God's doing to the wicked. Okay, you guys do your thing, but I know how it's going to be. You're going to bed anyway. And God just laughs at our, at our stupidity, so to speak, and a four-year-old isn't going to hurt anything. What makes us laugh? Laughter usually comes when we experience something unexpected. It's a surprise at the end. You know, you, a joke is where you get somebody going one way, and then the punchline takes you a whole, a whole different direction. That's what makes it funny. I have to explain that to my English-driven wife, who does not understand jokes. She understands puns, because English are into puns. But jokes? Are you kidding me? So... You have a punchline that goes in a different direction. Something that creates a surprise. That's why we enjoy things. That's why Christmas is so cool. Is that inside that box is a present. What is the surprise? And when you open it up, you, the glee in the little kid's face. Oh, and they start laughing and they get excited and they jump up and down. Something not so ordinary that occurs within the ordinary. So how's this for out of the ordinary? In Matthew 11, verse 4 through 6, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John 
what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. You talk about something out of the ordinary, packaged in the ordinary. You talk about surprise. You talk about getting something that, that changes everything, that good news trumps bad news. That the power of light surpasses the power of darkness. God didn't care. He had a solution. Of course he cared because he cares for your heart of pain, your heart of loss, the, the, the feelings that we have living in the world in which we do. But God also knows that good news always trumps bad news. That hope is much stronger than despair. It's what makes it work for us. That where you are most broken down, as God touches you, that becomes the strongest part of your life. Do you know that? God always takes our wounds, and we usually all serve out of our wounds. We don't serve out of our strength. That's easy peasy. That, that, that makes us sort of arrogant. Well, yeah, we got these talents, so I'm going to serve. Usually most of us are called to serve God out of our weakness, not out of our strength, so that God can be glorified and magnified. You're blind emotionally to the best of yourself because all you can see is your brokenness and, your, and, every, and everything negative about yourself. And he brings, gives you insight into how awesome you are, where your strengths are, and where your glory is, and he wants you to start living in that. You're paralyzed in confusion and mistakes, but God's given you the tools to walk again. This time with energy and boldness and not with slowness and self-hiding, self-minimizing. Also, your debts are forgiven. Isn't that cool? You open up the credit card bill and what you thought was going to be a 5,000 negative, suddenly you have 2,000 credit. Where'd that come from? A surprise! Your student loans are cleared. Your mortgage is paid for. God has radically miracleized your life. And you laugh. You have instant joy. Suddenly there's a sigh of relief. Things are different in my life because Jesus showed up. You've you're, you got cancer that's metastasized. You're saying goodbye to your family. Jesus shows up in your town. When he leaves your town, you are no longer cancer-ridden and you have a life to live. That's what happened in Jesus' day. So he would walk through village after village. What in this scenario is there for, not to cause you to laugh, to sing, and to experience joy? Small things. You, you put on a pair of jeans you haven't put on for several months, and there's a $20 bill in the pocket. Huh, wow. Your wife surprises you with a gift that you couldn't buy for yourself is too much, but she went out and splurged for you anyway and gave it to you for your birthday. Or your kids give you something besides a tie for Father's Day. Just little, tiny, little surprises that come along the way. Luke 6, 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. The joy of the Lord is our strength. He comes to us to create us. 
with an everyday experience of surprise. There's books out there, one I read years ago called Surprised by Joy. Maybe you've read it, it's a great book. We're surprised every day. What are you going to do to me today, God? How is my life today going to be a, a package of, of, of things that get unwrapped and, and I, my, my mouth drops and, and this spontaneous emotional reaction of joy and laughter and singing is going to come out as a result? Jesus had to have had a sense of humor. I mean... There's nothing that you have to know more about him than the fact that he let kids climb all over him. Kids know that they don't go to grouches. Have you ever noticed that? you got a crazy uncle and he's just always, you know, down at the mouth. Kids don't want to hang around him. Now, Jesus was a rabbi and the disciples, they were in the mode that says, well, we got to walk with this guy and whatever he says, we write down on a tablet at night, we see what kind of wisdom do we learn from all the things that he said today. And that's how the rabbis operated. They're sort of aloof and better than everybody else and smarter than everybody else. And, and that's what they expected Jesus, the rabbi, to do. But instead, he sits down and he lets kids crawl all over him. Do you know what kids do that crawl all over you? They pull your hair. They stick their finger in your ears. They wipe their nose on your robe, and they sometimes lift up the robe to see what's underneath it. All the things that little kids do to discover what's going on in the world around them. And Jesus said, this is my kingdom. Like little kids that are discovering things. My kingdom is just like this. Don't tell them to go away. While the disciples were going into apoplexy, Jesus was just smiling and laughing and having a great time. Do you think Jesus looked like Pope at high mass when he saw Peter's face when he took that coin out of the fish's mouth? That had to be funny. Peter was sort of the foil for the disciples. He was always getting himself into funny situations. That time he strutted across the water, you know, as long as he trusted in Jesus. Wow, this is a miracle. I'm, I'm coming out to see where Jesus is. And then he gets halfway out and he says, guys, you noticing this? This is cool. Look at me. Turns around, sinks like a, a rock, starts screaming like a baby. Jesus comes and pulls his wet neck out of the water and humbly he walks back. That had to be, and I think that story got funnier the longer it lasted. At first, you know, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't know how Peter was going to react to all that. But when he wasn't there, they had to have been laughing. The peacock just got wet. In fact, I think it was so funny that all the Gospels, if you notice, have that story in it except for one, which is Mark. And Mark, they say, is probably Peter's Gospel that... that that Mark wrote down, so that was probably his account. And for some reason, that story was left out. Peter was still embarrassed about that. But the rest of them were still writing it down and laughing. Oh, this is great stuff. Think of all of the imagery that, that Jesus used to describe the kingdom. It's all about the parties, the weddings, the celebrations. Matthew 22, 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. 25, 1, at the time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Luke 15, 
the prodigal son story. You all know that when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, he has chosen the wrong way. He has gone the demonic, evil, dark way. When he comes home, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to turn your back, shun him, and don't talk to him. Remind him how bad it was. He already knows how bad it was, or he wouldn't be coming home. My son, the father, said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, but I love this next little phrase. But we had to celebrate. We had to throw a party. There was nothing that we could do that would stop us, or we had to do this. This was mandatory stuff. When the lost son comes home, we have to throw parties for them. And those of you who have been around know that... I've said many times that the whole business of the church is to throw parties for sinners. That's our whole business. Just throw parties, celebrate sinners. Because I think that's sort of what God does. You get the picture. The God of ours is so much into unburdening your life, giving you what you don't deserve, surprising you with Christmas gifts every day of the year making some sense out of this time in which we live and, and the whole nature of who we are, Jesus brings with him gifts of joy and laughter and singing. Now, Bev and I just got back from a seven-day cruise. We gained a few pounds, I have to admit. We let caution go to the wind. We ate things we should never have eaten. I tried several things I'd never tried before, like alligator, why do we do those crazy, stupid things on cruises, you know? Ox tongue. I'd never had ox tongue before, so pretty good, actually. Yeah. Anyway, we ate. We had a few more daiquiris than we probably should have. We danced. We did every Well, Bev danced. I sit there. I'm a German. We don't dance unless it's oompa music, you know. Or... Anyway, um, we had a great time. But on our way home yesterday, 15 hours, whatever it was, 13 hours from Galveston, Texas to Rolla, Missouri, we get a phone call that our nephew, who we had helped raise back when he was nine years old on through high school and college, um, was dead. He sat down in a sofa and died, 49 years old. No, nobody knows how and why, and they're finding out what all that is right now. But suddenly, in the midst of all of this, we have this little microcosm of what our life is like. I'm not, I don't want us to be flippant. I don't want us to think that life doesn't have pain, that life doesn't have some really strong, tough moments that try your soul to the very depths. After all, Jesus died on the cross, a horrible death. He didn't come down here just to throw parties, but you notice he went to every party. Did he ever turn down an invitation to a party? The very first thing he did after he was anointed, baptized, he went out to the desert to decide what kind of kingdom am I going to represent. And here the devil comes along and says, you can, you can have this physical where, man, you're doing miracles and you're going to get on the headlines of TV every night and everybody's going to know who you are and you're going to go on the talking circuit and you're going to just make a big influence in this world. 
turning rocks into bread, jump off of high buildings, you know, whatever. The whole world's going to unite behind you. Or Jesus said, no, I think I'm going to go the other way where I'm only going to walk in the, in the processes of my Father. A much less flamboyant way of doing things. And so he comes back from the wilderness, and the very first thing he does is he gets invited to a party. Now, what kind of a God does that? No, you got serious things to do, Jesus. You got to raise up disciples. You got to bring your kingdom's message. You got to tell people what's going to happen. You got to do all this. Then you got to die, and you only got three years to do it. Get with the program, Jesus. And the very first thing he does is go to a party. And when they run out of wine, they go to Jesus' mother and say, we've run out of wine, what are we going to do? Now, if somebody came to my mom and said, we ran out of wine, she said, well, is there any where we can get some? But for some strange reason, his mother came to Jesus and said, they've run out of wine. I have a hunch that while he was growing up, there might have been a few broken wings on some birds that maybe he just went out and healed, you know, hoping nobody would notice. That he did, you know, butterflies flying away that maybe weren't going to fly away and some strange thing. Why would mom come to Jesus and say they're out of wine unless she had some clue that he was going to do something? And the God of the universe sitting up there Eons and eons ago, the very first act he did as Messiah was to make water into wine. Isn't that cool? But we live with the juxtaposition, the give and take, the opposites of laughter and pain, of joy and stress, of singing and abject silence in a dark room, curled up in a fetal position. You know the reality of that. Jesus said, I've come to give you what you don't deserve, what you're not expecting. I have come to give you a radical way of looking at these things because I've got your back. It's time for you as followers of Jesus Christ to start walking with that omnipotent swagger and say, God's got my back. What in the world do I have to worry about? I've been liberated. I've been freed. I've been restored. I've been redeemed. I've been re-energized. I've been re-hoped. I've been re-wrapped. Somebody who lived in a lot of shame was this woman in the Old Testament by the name of Sarah. For 80 years, she lived in the shame of her culture that says you're pretty much worthless if you can't have an offspring. You're just pretty much worthless. Here she was married to this famous, powerful, influential, world-changer husband. And she's reeling over the fact that she cannot have a child. That... that that would have torn anyone's heart out living in that culture and time. One day, three strangers come by. They show their hospitality, bring them in, feed them. As they're leaving, one of them turns to Abraham and he says, Abraham, you've been so gracious to us. I just want you to know that a year from now, you're going to have a little baby. And when we come back, we're going to see you with a baby. And Sarah, who's not supposed to be listening in because this is men's stuff, 
hears that outside the tent and she laughs. And the one symbolic of, of Jesus, the one active God who comes down and interacts with us the most, Jesus, we'll just say Jesus, says to Abraham, who laughed? And they bring Sarah in and she's all embarrassed. She has done the, the worst thing that a, that a Middle Eastern woman can do. She has intruded in man's business. She becomes the center of their uh, attention. She, everything wrong about this story. And Jesus looks at her and said, did you laugh? No, I didn't laugh. He says, well, I just want you to know a year from now you're going to have a little bundle of joy. And she says, at 80 years of age, are you kidding me? The thing that I've hoped for, the things that I've longed for, the things I've dreamed for, the things you promised me 25 years ago, and it ain't happening, and it hasn't happened, and you think it's going to happen now, are you kidding me? Sure enough, a year later, the three come by again. There's this little bundle of joy. And Jesus says to Sarah, what have you named your child? And she says, I've named him laughter. Because that's what Isaac means, laughter. That that laughter of shame turns to the laughter of joy. That gift from God that she thought was totally impossible came unwrapped under the Christmas tree. She opens it up and there is this baby and she says, my shame has now become my glory. One of my favorite verses in Scripture comes from Job 35.10. Job, the oldest book in the Bible. That, and you think that I'm making all this up and that this is just Bob Bretch's theory on stuff. Job 35 verse 10 says that the God of the universe gives us songs in the night. Now, unless you've had coffee too late at night, there's usually only three reasons that you stay awake at night. You're old. <laughs> I hate to say this, but you know what? I don't sleep as nearly as well as I used to when I was young. Or you're sick, and you don't feel well, and you're just, oh, man, do I get up and go to the bathroom one more time? Do I have to, you know, kneel before the porcelain king and throw up again? Or, you know, you know what it's like. You've been there. Or you are so stressed that you can't calm down. Something wrong is going on in your life. And the God of the universe says, I have come to give you songs in the night. You're stressed, you're old, you're sick. Jesus comes at the most extreme moment of our lives and he says, I have come to bring you joy. I've come to give you the gift of laughter. I have come to give you songs because ultimately I've come to give you myself so that you can see what life really is like. I have come so that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Merry Christmas. Unwrap the package. Go out of here. I don't care if you want to go out singing. Just do it on key. No, you don't even have to do that. Nothing says about being on key. Sing away, laugh away, joy away. Because that's exactly why Jesus came to this earth. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, but more importantly, wrapped in your skin and mine. The limitations that he gave up, we still don't understand all that. 
He gave it all up for you to have the gift of joy and laughter and singing. Let's pray.